Welcome to the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast, in which we bring you conversations we've had during our monthly speaker series held at Bloomberg's global headquarters in New York City. Cornell Tech at Bloomberg brings together students from Cornell Tech, Bloomberg employees, and members of New York's technology community to hear from entrepreneurs, investors, and thought leaders, luminaries from the global technology sector. Sean Stewart believes there are four ingredients necessary to grow a tech ecosystem, and they're all present in New York City. I'm Scarlett Fu with Bloomberg News, and in this episode, we speak with the CEO of New Lab and retrace his career journey from Expedia, Airbnb, and Waymo in Silicon Valley to the Brooklyn Navy Yard, where he is creating a community of startups and entrepreneurs who are championing innovation at the heart of Brooklyn's tech triangle. Let's um, talk about how you moved on to Waymo in 2016, because you left Airbnb. You weren't there for too long, not like at Expedia. Just over two years. Just yeah. over two years. Yeah, yeah. Um, you joined Google X's self-driving car project, which uh, was you were being brought in to commercialize autonomous vehicles as an on-demand taxi service. Yeah. That's the way that it was described to you? Uh, not really. Uh, it, there was a lot of stealth to how it was described to me. How um, was it described to you? Uh, so a recruiter called me who I dealt with before, um, and she had moved to X, as Google X as the executive recruiter there, mm-hmm. uh, and she said, don't hang up, I want to talk to you about self-driving cars, and I thought, what, this must be like, I must be being pranked or something, um, because obviously my career to that point didn't have direct correlations with mobility or the automotive space, um, and so I, I went and met with her, and, and we really just talked about where the project was. It was called Project Chauffeur, uh, mm-hmm. and it was early stage R&D. It was probably in its seventh year of developing um, the hardware and software necessary to, uh, to deploy an L4 vehicle or an L5, which are these levels of autonomy that you have in self-driving cars. Um, and so they had seen that technology start to make progress towards looking at commercial launches and commercial viability. Um, and so I don't think I was the only key hire necessary for that. It was a group of us that were added to the Waymo team or the chauffeur team at that time. But all of us came with a focus on commercial, commercial deployment of how do you build a product that people will like and use and love, but also have the safety gains that they were focused on. Um, and Airbnb helped like prepare me for the Waymo world because Waymo or chauffeur at that point was equally mission driven, just with different aspirations. Mm-hmm. Um, the statistic we like got hit over the head with every day at work was that a 737 crashes every hour of every day, uh, uh, every all year long in regards to road fatalities. It's 130 people will die on the roads in the hour we're hanging out here today. Uh, in the U.S., that's one 737 an hour, a day. Globally, it's one an hour. And if that was happening with planes, we would all be like all up in arms and right. focused on a solution. But, but we've accepted it as But part. it's so fragmented and, and that it's, you know, your grandmother and my uncle and it's all over the place that somehow it's been an acceptable form of life that people are driving, you know, two-ton pieces of metal at 65 mile an hour and occasionally losing control of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and the chauffeur team was just incredibly laser-focused on ending that Um which is something I found so admirable. Did you feel like you fit in with the guys at Google X? They're a pretty specific group of people. No, no, not even close. I was petrified. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, we were, the first product manager I met, um, Jamie Wado, was, she was from NASA. She'd worked on the Mars rover was her project before, the, before this, and I was like, uh, I did some hotel booking sites. <laughs> <laughs> so take that. Um, so no, I... I 
I mean, I've been petrified the last three jobs. Like starting at Airbnb, I was like, I'm a traditional travel guy, and these guys are bucking the trends, and how am I going to survive here? Then I get called to be at a, you know, the moonshot factory of Alphabet, like even more terrifying. Uh, and then not only that, I was petrified at Google about focusing on one frontier tech. Now I'm at New Lab. There's 130 companies <laughs> there. It's like the Noah's Ark of frontier tech. I have to, today I've met with someone on blockchain and then someone on vertical farming and then someone talking about quantum computing. And in every one of these meetings, I'm the least intelligent person in the room. Um, but you're like, probably asking the best questions as a result. Of hopefully. Not being so steeped in, in that specific technology. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's... it's I've been incredibly blessed and lucky to be have these opportunities, and I've been in the room at all of the last three jobs with just incredible talent, like really impressive people. So you talked about safety and how that was a big mission for the guys at Waymo or Project Show for as, as it was known. There's a common thread here between Airbnb and uh, Waymo. Um, safety is critical to the adoption and growth of these autonomous vehicles. It's also an important component of Airbnb's business because if you're sitting in a car without a driver and you're staying in a stranger's home, both can be seen as risky, and people are a little bit shy about doing that for the first time. Compare and contrast your thinking about safety at Airbnb with your thinking about it at Waymo. Yeah, the interesting part was that both of them had a similarity, which was if you got exposed to a real-life experience with the product you were terrified of, your perspective changed completely. Uh, at Airbnb, everyone thought, there is no way I'm staying in someone's house. Whether they're there, whether they're not, like, this is crazy. Then they used it once. My parents were like, why are you going to work for this company? Like, <laughs> who would stay in a stranger's home? Then my parents used it once in Paris. And instead of staying in, like, a 140-square-foot Holiday Inn, they stayed in, like, an 800-square-foot one-bedroom apartment in the middle of Champs-Élysées or something. And they never turned back. They used it for the rest of their no travel comforts. experience. And so that, the first piece was Airb with Airbnb was it was a gateway drug. Like once you used it, you were hooked on it. And typically once you used it, you wanted to be a host because you were like, oh, I can do the same as what these people are doing. Are your make parents money. hosting? Uh, they're not. I'm, I was a super host in Oakland, and we loved it. We have such interesting stories. We made some of our closest friends in Oakland were guests who stayed with us when they were looking to move to Oakland. Um, so that was, and that was actually very true at Waymo, a harder job exposing people to it. Mm -hmm. But you ask people, would you ever get in a self-driving car? Hell no, that's terrifying. I'd never go near that. Would you like to ride in one? Sure. You put them in it. <laughs> they would drive around, experience Mountain View or Oakland. And I did these demos with people all the time for their first experience in a self-driving car. So you were sitting in the driver's seat but not driving? I would sit in the back with them. Oh. Okay. Um, and the amazing thing, what I used to watch is how long it took them to start typing on their cell phone. And you would you get in the car and they'd be kind of holding on to stuff. Oh, how is this going to work? Mm -hmm. 80, 90 seconds later, <laughs> just bored because the car drives. Uh, it drives the way my mother drove me to school when we were kids. Like incredibly safe, stops at every stop sign, mm -hmm. just behaves in a way that's actually incredibly comforting. Um, I got an, a lift here and I wasn't anywhere near as comfortable with how he drove. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think both of them were, the more you could expose someone to the product and have them actually experience it, the more all of the barriers they had towards it dissolved. There's also um, a network component. There are reviews and feedback that play into everything that people have to be mindful of that can also reassure people for the first time as well. Certainly for Airbnb, you yeah. scour the reviews and make sure that your host is someone who's upstanding and you know hasn't done anything crazy. Yeah. Um, and there's a feedback loop that, that comes into play. Yeah, Joe Gebbia did a great TED Talk just about the currency of community reviews and how that alleviates like 
all the concern. You can write a beautiful editorial page that says why you should stay in this house, but 15 people saying I stayed here and I loved it, that's all of the kind of the confirmation you need. Mm -hmm. um, the biggest challenge for an Airbnb host was getting their first booking, like the first review, because mm -hmm. that's the person who's taking a leap of faith and saying I'll try it even though there's nobody else um, confirming it. But we'd seen that with TripAdvisor. I mean, working at TripAdvisor and just seeing the value of community of, and people actually adding their voices to consumer product reviews was was significant. Airbnb benefited from that a great deal. So that's the hurdle for Airbnb. What's the hurdle for for a self-driving vehicle? How do you get people comfortable with that idea, short of just kind of you know saying, hey, you, you'll have to take a leap of faith and sit in this car where it's being self-driven. Yeah, I think you, you do what Waymo does, which they're incredibly open. They publish detailed safety reports. They let government officials try it. They have journalists try it. Like you try to get as many people that you and I will listen to, mm -hmm. to experience the product and confirm the safety of it, um, confirm the value of it. Someone to vouch for it. Exactly. I mean, we're, I think it was two years ago, it was the first year in four decades where American fatalities on the road went up and not down. Like we're building cars with four different airbags, emergency braking, lane assist, they honk if you do this, they put a thing in your mirror if you do that, and we're killing ourselves at a faster pace? Like how is that possible? Um, and it's because of cell phones, it's distraction. I used to drive two hours to work every day each way on 580 from Oakland to Mountain View, and I would see people watching movies on iPads, doing their hair, makeup, like at 45 miles an hour? Like On the highway? On the highway. Um, that and doesn't happen here just because you can't drive, you that, can't fast. drive that fast. Yeah. For, at least you can watch a film at 10, 10 <laughs> miles an hour. That's okay. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's there's just a really, there's a long-term view. And I was I, I learned being at Waymo that this is incredibly important to like the future safety of next generations. I don't know if it'll arrive today or tomorrow, but I have a one-year-old son, and I really hope to hell he doesn't have to get a license in 15 years. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've drawn some parallels between Airbnb and uh, and Waymo when it comes to safety. Draw another parallel for me because after Waymo spun out Google X, spun out of Google X, I should say, yeah. Dara Shahi was hired as CEO of Uber, kind of like the adult in the room. He came in as a professional CEO. He was CEO of Expedia when you were at that company as well. Mm. What do you make of the fact that you both had deep roots in the traditional travel industry? Um, and then you both made transitions uh, within a year of each other, if I have my numbers right, uh, to companies that are focused on mobility and autonomous vehicles. Coincidence? I'm happy to be referenced along the same sentences of Dara anytime <laughs> you want. Um, I worked many layers below him at Expedia, but certainly was incredibly impressed. One of the best leaders uh, at a CEO level of a large company I've ever been exposed to. I think what Expedia taught you and what a lot of businesses teach you was it was an incredible, it was a marketplace business where there was two sides that were equally important. That there was customers on the demand side and you had to keep them happy. Mm -hmm. And there was suppliers across car rental and airline and accommodation. And you also had to keep them happy. And the marketplace doesn't work without both of them. And you have to build a strategy that works for both. Um, and I think that skill set works across multiple different businesses. If you look at New Lab, we have government stakeholders involved, like the Partnership Fund for New York City's helped us a great deal. Um, you have them come to us with problems we solve. We have corporates who come to us and need assistance in developing innovation programs and ecosystems to help with them. But we also have member companies and entrepreneurs, and I need to make sure the value proposition for them is equally as strong as it is for the corporate clients, the government bodies, mm -hmm. or the investments that we make through our venture fund. So 
I think businesses like that just taught you how to juggle multiple stakeholders with, with an end goal in sight. Um, and Waymo is that same way where there's just multiple different components that all need to line up. You buy vehicles from the car companies, so you need to partner on that side. But then you also have to provide a valuable experience to a consumer. Mm -hmm. And you have to marry that also with safety as a lens where... Uh, the task fundamentals, like transportation as a service. When you get an Uber or a Lyft, there's probably two or three things that matter to you. How quickly is that car there? And I, I've seen it here. I open my app and I'm like, six minutes? Hell no. Like, I'll go to the other app. Like, six minutes? I used to sit in Brooklyn for 25 minutes waiting for a, a cab to roll by. Yeah. But you think about that. You think about uh, the cost and the price. Um, and you think about safety and the driver and the conditions of the vehicle and the atmosphere you're in. And so someone like Waymo has to balance, like we want it to be as safe as humanly possible, mm -hmm. but then if a customer is going to switch because they can get across town quicker, like how do you balance that as well? So just difficult decisions to make with an end goal, yeah. You mentioned how you drove to work two hours each way, was it? Good okay. day, yeah. Oakland to Mountain View, that sounds like a really painful commute for anyone who's familiar with the Bay Area. I see a lot of people nodding there. Um, that played a factor in your deciding that you were willing to look outside of the Silicon Valley, outside of the Bay Area for your next role. Yeah. Um, how did you decide to leave Waymo and join New Lab? Yeah, I think every big career decision is like a combination of personal and, and professional factors. The, the personal ones were pretty big drivers this time around. My wife's family is from Connecticut, so they're on the East Coast. Um, you can drive. I spent four or five hours in a car every day for two and a half years, and I was totally fine with it, to be honest. Really? Um, yeah, you just suck it up. This is To work on something this interesting at a company this amazing, like, when am I going to get to do this again? What changes? I had a kid. Um, I was leaving home at 5, 5.30 in the morning every day, coming home 8, 9 p.m. So weekdays I didn't see my son. And so my wife eventually was like, is this really the life you want? Mm -hmm. um, and so we were looking at, do we move to Mountain View, spend $2,000 per square foot to buy a house in Mountain View um, and lower the commute time, uh, but still not have Kate's family close by um, and still, I mean, it's crazy to think. Of, I always thought people who raised kids in New York were crazy. Like, who would want to have a child there? The difference, actually, like, we live in Cobble Hill, and I can walk to five parks, Brooklyn Bridge Park. I can go play basketball. We can go to a pool. We can go this, all within, like, five-minute walking distance. You can't do that in Silicon Valley. In Oakland, we pack everyone up in a car to, like, go get milk. Like, it just wasn't <laughs> the same. Um, and so there was a ton of personal benefits of, like, actually coming back here to raise a child and, the, and the, all the kind of facilities you have around you. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other part was someone told me about New Lab, and it, I was just so enthralled by, like, what they were building and so captivated by the potential um, that when those two align, interesting career opportunity with like a ton of improvement in your personal life, mm -hmm. hard to say no. So we called New Lab a tech hub. Explain what it is and whether it's like WeWork, which more people are familiar with. Yeah, um, it's, it's certainly a little bit different. I, to me, it's a home for entrepreneurs in frontier technology mm -hmm. who are building companies, um, which is already you know a 90% failure rate of building companies if you're building a marketplace or an app or a software application. Building companies is already one of the most stressful, difficult things you'll ever go through in your life. Um, and I can't, I, you know, I've done it with like rich parents. We had guilt or we had Google or like, I have never done it at the kind of the terrifying level of what some of these entrepreneurs go through. If you add in you're working on hardware and frontier technology, it's even more difficult. These people need everything in their corner you can provide them. Mm -hmm. And what New Lab does is provides a range of the resources and access that gives them a leg up and an increased likelihood of succeeding. And I think what's interesting is 
there's six or seven million dollars worth of prototype equipment uh, at New Lab. So 3D printers and lathes and CNC mills and wood shops and metal shops. And when I first went there, I was like, oh, this is why people are here. Like you have these all these resources. Um, and the more companies I spoke to there, just was through the interview process, I said, what's the most important thing? Why are you here? Why do you like it? And they said, oh, it starts with the community. And I was like, what, what about the tools and all this? <laughs> And then they showed me there's a, like an operating system at New Lab, and you can type in fluid dynamics. And it's like, here are the seven people in, at New Lab who have PhDs in fluid dynamics. So instant network, essentially. So these people are four people trying to build a company, and um, you know they, they need assistance across so many different fields. And this community comes together because um, that Noah's Ark approach, again, means that they're not all competitive. There's not 100 companies working on the same thing. They're mm -hmm. all so different that they don't all sign NDAs, they prototype robots and let them roam around, they don't cover the windows of their offices with black paper. Like It is a completely open environment because it's trusted and there's a variation in fields and sectors so that people don't feel that there's a competitor next door. And so the first was the community is incredibly valuable to people that you have this resource. Then you have um, all of the assets that kind of the Waymo team, uh, the, sorry, the New Lab team brings to them, which is you have these government programs and corporate programs that help open up pilot opportunities. Mm -hmm. They've helped people test their sensors in downtown Brooklyn. They've negotiated pilots in Jeju Island in Korea for some of the member companies. And they don't do this for gain. They don't get paid for it. They do it so that the New Lab brand continues to grow as a place that you are more likely to succeed if you build your company in this environment and this ecosystem than anywhere else. So these are companies that have already passed a lot of hurdles. They have gotten some kind of financing already um, by the time they, they get to you. Only 15% of companies who apply to be part of New Lab are accepted. So talk a little bit about the criteria you're looking for when they apply. Yeah, that's, it's, it's a really good point. So the first piece is they pay rent. So that um, so it means that the stage isn't consistent, that these typically, they have a product, they may have prototypes or pilots, they may have a seed round or have an angel investor, but they can they can pull up their bootstraps and like have an office and they're at that stage. Mm -hmm. Outside of that, we haven't, we don't require you take investment, we don't require you accept a certain valuation from us. So. The capital side of it isn't part of the calculation as they consider New Lab. And the result of that is that you get people at all different stages. We've had companies come in with 30 employees and a $50 million valuation. And we've had people come in with three people and a product that's in prototype in one store somewhere and they're trying to build a company from there. Um, so what we look at is, is certainly how you fit to the community. Mm -hmm. um, are you competitive? Is it a technology or a sector or a focus that will be additive to what we're doing? Um, we want it to be good for the world. Um, I tell my wife. Is that wife, a requirement? Yeah, kind of. Um, we don't have anyone building bombs or guns or anything along the lines that we wouldn't be proud to come home and tell our families we're helping cultivate. Mm -hmm. um, I read the paper every morning and I think the planet is going down the toilet. And then I get to New Lab and I'm like, this is 600 people all building things to make the planet better. And I kind of love that. Like they're doing clean air or clean water, or new energy sources, new transportation. Like they're all over the place. Things to restore your faith in humanity. Every day. Um, and so we look at that as a lens. We look at your track record, what you've been doing in the past, what your expertise is. Most of the new lab companies come either out of academia. So um, they have spent a bunch of time building IP or studying a field. Mm -hmm. Now they're out in the real world and want to build a company or they're serial entrepreneurs. They're like, this is my third company, my fourth company, and they come to us to help build that. Do you judge someone based on the fact that they're an entrepreneur? I mean, are you looking at the person or are you looking at the idea? What's more important? 
Um, I think typically you always focus on the person first and the idea second. You can pivot an idea. You, you, you can't change if the entrepreneur doesn't have the capabilities to succeed. Mm -hmm. But you assess both. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's really looking at how you build and add to a community that already exists, um, how we feel excited about your technology and the prospects of it, uh, and how it aligns with the overall ecosystem and the vision of what we're building. Do you guys invest in these companies, in the member companies? We have, but we don't require it. We've invested in about 17 companies so far. Um, mm -hmm. More sporadically, we've rolled up SPVs and, and invested when the opportunity seems appropriate. We're now building a venture fund to get more aggressive and have an investment thesis across the business so that... that Is it awkward if you invest in some companies but not the others? I mean, won't they feel like, wait a minute, we, we should get some of that funding too? Yeah, I think with 17 out of 130 or more, like it's not at the point where it's embarrassing not to get funding, and, and not all of them want funding funding or want our funding, um, and that's a beauty to the model. You can come in if you've, you've got your Series A or B done and you don't need funding for five years. A requirement is not that you take our money or that you allow us to have access to your equity. That's, that's just not what, what the vision is. All right, so let's talk a little bit about New York as a tech hub. Um, yeah. What has surprised you since you moved here, back to New York actually, because you had a connection to it before, um, as a tech hub? Is it still the second best place in the world to be an entrepreneur, an investor, or is it can it overtake Silicon Valley? So I, I definitely can. I think there's kind of four heats that you kind of look at to see how well they're, they're performing, to see how an ecosystem can thrive with kind of frontier technology and entrepreneurialism. And I don't know if I just didn't notice it when I was here before, but all four of them seem to be really pumping right now, which mm -hmm. is um, you need government support. You need folks like the Partnership Fund for New York. You need the EDC, these people who are pushing programs to help bring more technology uh, to, to the region. Uh, and so that government focus, all the way from state down to local, maybe even federal, that seems to be incredibly strong right now in New York City. Um, and I think that's the first really important factor. The second is you need educational establishments that are pumping out great talent. Cornell Tech. Um, and Cornell Tech wasn't here when I was here five years ago. And so you have Cornell Tech and a range of other educational institutions that I won't mention, but they're all pumping out great talent. Mm -hmm. um, we had projects, and I've been involved with uh, companies on the West Coast that have had to open recruiting offices in New York. I don't think you had to do that five or six years ago to get certain expertise. If you want people in mobility, Pittsburgh and Carnegie Mellon are pumping out talent. You need to recruit down there. So there's starting to be just pockets of excellence in recruiting. Mm -hmm. And so that second factor is, is certainly strong here. And then the third is you need job opportunities and exciting companies for this talent to come out of so that somebody doesn't graduate from Cornell Tech and go straight to the West Coast for their job. Man, I can list 15 different companies I met with when I was looking at coming back to New York, all of which were phenomenal opportunities. Um, and so I think that side of things is really moving as well. Uh, and the last is just the quality of life and the ecosystem that attracts these people. If all of those three factors line up, plus you get to live in a place as, as amazing as New York City, mm -hmm. it's, it's a hell of a, a destination to compete with. So it becomes a no-brainer. You talk about government support being so critical. I wonder what you think about the controversy surrounding Amazon and its HQ2 in Long Island City because oh, city lawmakers and obviously a lot of residents and taxpayers are really angry about this sweetheart deal that Amazon, which is a company with a market cap of, what, $800 billion, is getting. They feel like it's getting a free ride for something that it's not going to deliver in the end. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I haven't spent as much time understanding the trade-offs of what they provided. I think bringing companies like that to New York City is a big win, but it's a balance of what the cost of that is. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think, yeah, I can't certainly suggest that what was given up was too aggressive or too much. I think it's fantastic that they're here. I think it's great that companies like them are growing their talent here and growing the recruiting that will come with their expansion here. But it has to be at the right terms. Um, whether the deal struck for Amazon was the right terms, I, I, I'm probably not the right person to say. Do you believe Amazon when it says that they can create up to 40,000 jobs with HQ2? Does that sound reasonable to you? I mean, considering, like, I'm pretty sure my kid thinks presents come from Amazon at this point. Like, the amount of <laughs> boxes that show up at my house, yeah, yeah, I'm sure they have the ability to expand and grow in the region. Uh, I think they've done so in other parts of the country as well. Um, so I think having that here in New York is a positive, mm. but everything needs to be at the right terms. All right, I have one final question for you before we open it up to the audience. Um, your last two jobs you got through recruiters, is that, is that unusual? Is that something that um, happens only at the higher levels, or is that something that uh, a young leader can find out earlier in their career, can be part of? Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I think I had a boss early on who said, any recruiter who calls you, you treat them like gold. Like, you answer their questions, you go talk to them about jobs, you even interview for jobs you don't want. These are people who will be looking at jobs and, and potential for you for the rest of your life. That's and, what you did from the get-go, And you right? want them on your side. I, I've interviewed for jobs I would never consider in places I wouldn't consider. I took vacation days to fly to New Mexico to interview for jobs. And I knew I didn't want them, but I wanted to work with the recruiter. I wanted to understand the company. Mm -hmm. And the recruiters, their task is we got to send 20 good people, and one of them has to take the job. And if they start to know that you're always one of 20 who are going to be great and perform well, and the company is going to be excited that the recruiter bought them to you or brought you to them, uh, then they'll continue to call you. You'll be on their Rolodex. And what you start to be is the first call they make when they get a new case. They get a new job, and they call you and say, this is what I'm searching for. Are you interested in it? Do you know someone who would be? And that has been so important for the last decade for me. Um, so early on, the lower the pay grade, like recruiters are expensive. Like most of my um, big jobs have come through Diversa. Mm -hmm. They're a great firm, not cheap. Mm -hmm. And so you typically aren't hiring them to fill a $75,000 role. You're hiring them to fill like an executive position. And so early stages of my career, no, they weren't as important. But if I ever heard from them or met them, I considered it a really important network to, to maintain. Mm -hmm. And then as my career has grown, as you said, the last three jobs came through executive recruiting firms. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, yeah, if I did it all over again, I wouldn't change anything about how important I made those contacts. But the early part of your career, you rely on your network, you rely on the community around you, something that New Lab provides, essentially. Yeah, you still rely on the networks. And some of the jobs early on in my career were posted on their website. They were posted on LinkedIn. But when you're searching for, I mean, the X job, I, was, I couldn't even tell my wife what I was doing for the first year. Like, I wasn't allowed to update my LinkedIn. I was working on a project at X. You just X. told her that you're working at Google? Yeah. I said, I'm working at X on a project. And it was, there was a point where we were kind of cleared to update our spouses on what we were working on. Um, so they certainly want posting that role on a website mm -hmm. or explaining someone to help commercialize self-driving cars because there was a ton of press. There still is a ton of press around it, and so that sure. creates speculation. Yeah. So when you get to those positions of sensitivity, you hire recruiting firms who can be sensitive and confidential and can go out to a network and talk to people. Um, so, yeah. Great stuff. Thank you so much. Now I'm going to open things up to the audience. I see a hand being raised immediately, so we'll get a microphone out to you so you can ask your question. That was quick. 
Hi, my name is Kathleen Gowder from Instant Magazine. And uh, there was something you said earlier about kind of being the dumbest person in the room. Maybe you didn't say it quite like that, but that was <laughs> what I got that. from it. How did you deal with, like, what did you do to deal with that imposter syndrome? And, like, how did you educate yourself so that they took you seriously as a leader? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. What I think it took me about six months at X to realize was that I brought a skill set that was equally as impressive to the person from NASA as their skill set was to me. That building businesses, scaling businesses, knowing how to run teams, operate, hire, recruit, those are some things that someone with a PhD in LiDAR technology finds incredibly interesting and challenging uh, and, and wants to learn about how you can help them do better at those things. So it just took a while to have the confidence that like what I brought to the table may not have been as interesting to me, but was interesting to the people on the other side. Uh, and the second piece was you had to show impact. Like as soon as I actually delivered, like the first deal I formed um, for a chauffeur was a large partnership with Lyft. I spent a bunch of time with the founders there and we developed a, a, a deal between the two companies. And that was the first sign I had proven to the team working on the technology that I could add to this overall project and help get on the road and save those lives as quickly as possible. And so it built confidence. But yeah, I think you go through that every cycle. Any new job, you have to feel confident that you can deliver and have a positive impact before you get that confidence. Great question. And next, right here, we can get a microphone over. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name is Valentina. Uh, so uh, maybe I wasn't very concentrated, but I couldn't really get what exactly a new lab does for the companies because you say they pay rent mm -hmm. and you don't have to have any um, like equity in them. So mm -hmm. like if I would like to open a few startups, like why would I come to you if, and even make the effort to apply to get accepted? Like if I'm going to pay rent and... What else? I mean, I understand the concept, like being around smart people is, mm. you know, exceptional. But yeah. other than that, what is, I, I'm just trying to get more specifics. No worries. Yeah, I think there's a few pieces. So you, you start with the facilities at the location itself, and that's kind of the platform, which is um, everything we mentioned of wood shops and CNC mills and lays and 3D printers. Um, these aren't concepts or, or hardware that you can't find in New York, but to find all of them in one place is, is actually quite unusual. It's the equivalent of like an MIT labs, just something that any startup uh, entrepreneur can access. Then you get a space where you can build your company. And to attract an engineering talent, like getting people to work for us in Jersey City in our two-person office was incredibly difficult. New Lab is 85,000 square feet with 90-foot ceilings. It's a 1904 building that was used by the Navy to build some of the biggest wartime ships this country has produced. USS Missouri came out of our building, USS Arizona. Um, it is a just a jaw-dropping facility. You open this door, it's like Charlie and Chocolate Factory of Frontier Tech. Um, and so to be able to build your company and recruit talent to have that as a work environment is incredibly positive. Then you add in the network that they have of all the resources and the talent. Jump Bike came out of New Lab. Um, they came to us as social bicycles. Uh, at New Lab, they created an electric bike. And they suddenly realized they needed uh, something solar to power the lock on the back because you didn't have a charge enough when the bike is idle. So there's another member company right opposite them, has an office next door. They're called Voltaic. And they make solar arrays for a range of different products, everything from backpacks to floating buoys. So the solar array on a jump bike came from Voltaic right next door. And so that ecosystem is actually not trivial. Like, they solve challenging problems. Um, 
Then you have the flow of VCs that come through where we bring people through to tour and have access to companies. We introduce them to opportunities. And then you have the network, which David and Scott, um, like I've lived in New York for 10, 12 years combined. And so I can maybe get into a restaurant or two. These guys have been here for 40 plus years. They have incredible relationships across corporate and government. Deep roots. Deep roots, like just amazing. Um, and so what they do is you come to them and you say, we're having a challenge getting, if we keep the jump bike example, getting approval for jump bikes to be deployed throughout Brooklyn. Uh, David put in a call and had Eric Adams come to New Lab and ride one of the bikes around the Navy Yard. Then you get the Navy Yard itself, which isn't city land. It's actually the Navy's land. So we get to pilot products in the Navy Yard. Yeah. It's like our own little sandbox. Um, Carmera, the autonomous mapping company, they mapped the Navy Yard first. Lumina, that builds sensors, they've deployed them around the Navy Yard. We have people with things in the water, things on roofs. You can test all of it, not only in the building, like Kevin Ryan's Truebird serves coffee to all of us every day, or you can test them in the Navy Yard itself. So these are all, there's no like silver bullet that is like, this is why people come to New Lab. When you stack this cake up of all these reasons and these benefits they get, it just gives them a bigger edge and a likelihood to succeed in, a, in just a daunting task that is challenging in itself. Thank you. No worries. Thank you. Right over here at the end of the row. Hi, thank you for sharing your story. Nice. I'm a part of uh, 37 Angels. We're about 80 uh, female uh, angel investors. Okay. But we invest in male and female-owned companies. I was just curious, what percentage of the companies at New Lab are female founders hmm. or have a female on the founding team? I don't actually know. Uh, I could get that stat and follow up if we can grab a card. Um, I certainly, there's a range of them that have like strong female leadership. Modern Meadow is an example that moved out from the West Coast and has a, a female CEO, I believe. Um, off the top of my head, I'm not sure. Um, but we could get you the diversity stats if that's helpful. Um, I do know for our team. Um, so we have a 24-person team and 16 are women. So we actually have a diversity problem going the other way. But, um, <laughs> That's not a problem anymore. No. <laughs> not a problem. That was a joke, for sure. <laughs> Any other questions from the audience? Right over here. Thank you. Hello. My name is Marcus from 100 Resilient Cities, founded by the Rockefeller Foundation. You spoke a lot about government involvement, uh, particularly throughout your career at various different levels. I'm curious to know, it's less really about involvement, more about collaboration with academia, corporate sector, nonprofits, etc. I'm curious to know what advice would you give to governments, particularly local governments, to really cultivate and enable the environment of growth and innovation in the technology space? Yeah, it's a great question. I think what we've seen uh, be the most successful for us at New Lab in the ways that they can both help facilitate some of the innovation and challenges, but also be part of it, um, is that you need an ecosystem that comp comprises of each of the key stakeholders. You need academics involved with the IP they've developed, the insights they've created. Um, you need government bodies providing everything from data to insights into what their challenges are and what they would like solved. Then you need uh, to bring in the entrepreneurs so you have talent of the next generation and people who are playing with frontier technology and looking at new ways to solve existing problems. And then you need participation of the corporates. They have data sets and challenges and problems and funding that all comes together. And then what New Lab has done is we're like the interlocutor in the middle. We serve as the Switzerland. Um, so the Urban Tech Hub is a great example, um, which is in partnership with the EDC and City Ventures. 
And there, Shana, who's actually right sitting behind you, um, the, she serves as the interlocutor in the middle who ensures the entire ecosystem, that entire studio makes progress together ac across uh, a focused initiative, a problem they want to solve. And so I think what we've learned at least is governments shouldn't feel they have to do it on their own. But to be able to partner with each of those key stakeholder communities and work with someone who can bring everyone together and facilitate that movement in a single direction is where we've seen the most amount of progress. Right over here. Hi, my name is Shante Harris. I work for a strategic consulting government relations firm called Capolino here in the city and do a lot of work with different startups and innovative companies that are looking to enter and grow in the market. I'm curious, what is a current startup or urban solution, you know, smart city solution that you're really excited about, whether that's a member of the new lab or just something you've come across lately? Oh, man. I just did, I did an interview yesterday, and they asked me this, and I was like, it's like telling you to pick your favorite kid. <laughs> um, so there's 130 companies. I started December 1st. I've met 42 of them. I'm going. I have a list, and I'm going through the list trying to meet every single one of them. Um, and candidly, like every single one of them, kind of blows me away. So what I will do is tell you, I give tours a lot. I've been new, and so I give tours to journalists of New Lab to investors. And the one that everyone without fail stops at and asks how much it is to buy it is a company called Farm Shelf. Um, and they are working on a vertical farming unit. It looks like a refrigerator, except it's glass. And it has the Lego blocks where you can, through hydroponics and a combination of AI that senses the water and sun levels, you can grow your own vegetables in your kitchen. Um, what, you buy the unit and put it in your house? Yeah, today they work with um, professional kitchens. So they have, I think, about 35 units deployed in, in different restaurants, a lot of higher-end chefs. Um, but the system will water and feed whatever plants you put in there. The average head of lettuce travels 2,000 miles to New York City restaurants. Um, they travel 20 feet when they have these solutions in-house. In um, they're economically viable because they can make a lot. They can actually create savings off of the produce they're getting, um, and you can customize it. So, like, they had an executive chef who didn't like that their microgreens had more stem than leaf. They wanted larger leaves, shorter stems. So they just alter the blue, mi blue light mix with the red light mix, give it more blue light when it's in its early stages of infancy, and suddenly you alter the growth pattern of the, of the plant. And not only that, but there are you know, seed banks around the world that have seeds of types of kale and lettuce that have, haven't been grown in the U.S. ever. But with these environments, you can actually build one out. So every time my wife comes to New Lab, she's like, when do I get one of those? So, <laughs> um, so I won't say the favorite kid, but that's one worth checking out when you get home. A lot of excitement about around that one. Yeah. This gentleman over here. Thank you. James Manfredonia. A much more specific question. Speed limits, are they an obstacle for Waymo? By definition, if it's a 25 mile an hour speed limit, don't they have to follow it? Speed limits aren't the obstacle. Like, we're the obstacle. Um, People. Yeah. An example is um, our cars, our cars, their cars now, I have to say. Um, their cars will slow down for every school zone. So every car that travels past a school zone, it'll drop to the regulated speed so that it keeps safe uh, at any active school period. Do you know what percentage of other traffic slows down to that same speed limit? Like, nobody. Um, we pull over for school buses. You have a school bus on either side of the road in Arizona, you need to pull over. So if there's a school bus on the right side of the road and you're driving the opposite direction, you're supposed to pull over and wait just in case the kid needs to run across double lanes of traffic. How many people do you think actually do that? Nobody, except the Waymo cars. And so these are some of the examples of like speed to destination as being something that's important to people 
What if you're safer, but it takes a little bit longer because it obeys every single rule? And it's also, if you look at the um, collision data from someone like a Waymo, the majority of their collisions are rear endings at stop signs because people don't think you're going to stop at a stop sign. They think you're going to roll. And so when you do a hard stop at a California stop sign, every once in a while, someone just clips into the back of you. And their answer is, I had no idea you were going to stop. Like, why would you stop at a stop sign? <laughs> um, so the, the, the cars will operate by the letter of the law at all times. The challenge is, how does that interact with the rest of our behavior as drivers? That if on a 45, traffic is going 55, the 45-mile-an-hour self-driving car is a problem. Now, is the car the problem, or is it the fact that everybody's doing 55 in a 45 the problem? Can you override it? As a customer or? Yeah. I mean, Waymo certainly could decide how they program their but vehicles. But I mean, you but know, 45 miles an hour in a 45 mile per hour zone is not the norm. That's right. Well, I think this is, yeah, the delicate question about adoption. Um, and are we trying to solve a thing, which is that people driving 55 and 45s occasionally hurt people? Mm -hmm. um, and are we trying to solve it or are we trying to fit into the driving patterns that got us to where we are today? Right over here. Hi, my name is Mildred. I'm very fascinated by your career path. And while you're interviewing for a job, um, they interview you for the position as much as you interview them for their company. Um, so what are some of the qualities that you look for? You mentioned that um, some of these companies like Airbnb and Google X, obviously they're visionaries. Um, are there any other qualities um, that you look for? And also um, for yourself, what are some of the biggest traits that you see that carry you through all of these career changes? Oh, wow. Good question. Um, I mean, the first thing to me typically is that the recruiting experience, the interview experience, is really going to be an indication of what it's like working there. Like if they're, I've interviewed at companies where they're like, so why should we hire you? And they kind of just sit back and it's really uncomfortable and it's kind of awkward and they really expect you to sell yourself. And then you get into other environments like Airbnb, they were like, let us tell you why you want to work here. Um, and I think those two differences are going to tell you the flavor of the type of culture you're getting involved with. Uh, and so I like to understand the value set of the companies, how they built the culture, what's important to them, how people work across departments, whether it's structured in silos, how much they collaborate. Um, and then you just talk to people who work there. Like I really like to understand what it's like to be part of that experience. But I've never interviewed for a company and loved the interview experience then hated the company. And usually where I've really disliked the interview experience, it's been pretty indicative of what it's like to work at that organization. So I think you use your gut of like, if you come out of an experience loving everybody you met with, felt like they treated you with respect. I interviewed for one of the jobs coming back here where I sat in the lobby for 90 minutes, an hour and a half. They just left me sitting there. I flew from Oakland to uh, New York for, for the interview. For an executive position. Yeah. And they came out and said, sorry, we're really busy. And I was like, that's okay, I'm not going to work here. Um, <laughs> but that tells you probably what the environment's going to be like. It's going to be a bit chaotic. People are going to show up late to meetings. It's going to be considered totally fine. And people's time is going to be more important than your time. And are you okay with that? And some people thrive in that environment. Um, my brother works at Goldman Sachs. They're completely different environments. He loves that environment. I wouldn't survive for a minute in it. Um, so you have to find the kind of conditions, the values, the culture that appeals to you. And there's nothing wrong with saying this just isn't for me. All right. That's all the time we have for. I want to thank, of course, uh, Sean Stewart of New Labs CEO, newly minted CEO. Thank you so much. Thanks so much.
Thanks for listening, and be sure to follow Tech at Bloomberg on Twitter, like Cornell Tech at Bloomberg on Facebook, or visit the Cornell Tech at Bloomberg podcast homepage to sign up for invites to future events in this series. You can also watch any of the interviews from this event series on Inside Bloomberg on YouTube.